Well, good morning, everyone. Packed house. It's nice. Amen? Who's excited for today? Like, don't even worry about how warm it is in here. If you can't, if you can't drip a little perspiration for the Lord, you got an issue. Let's just call it what it is. Yeah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Turn up the heat, right, Tim? I could do that right here, but I'm not going to. Just glad everybody's here. And where, Where'd Shannon go? Downstairs? Have we introduced your baby? We need to, we need to, hold on a second. I got, I got a real good one. We need to really be praying for Shannon as you heard. You know, she's struggling to sleep. I'd struggle to sleep too if I just had a boy shoot a bear. <laughs> I mean, had a baby. Shannon and Matt, it, both are true. And both kind of keep you up at night. But Matt, you're going to do the deed. Come on up with your new daughter, JL. Let's uh, everybody welcome JL into this con- congregation. I wasn't joking about the bear comments. Because some little all-wine boy did just shoot a bear last night. Yes, day before. Night before. You want to say anything, Pa? You don't want to wake her up. She's so cute. Look at her. Awesome. Everything's going good? You're sleeping like a baby, I'm sure. Absolutely. Amen. You missed my joke. Did you hear what I said? I'd say, I told everybody we need to be praying for you because of your lack of sleep, and I'd be not sleeping very well either if my little boy just shot a bear. Oh, yeah, I don't know. Eh, it's a thing. They're so used to it. I've actually discovered um, what makes me the most angry, and it's when he's snoring and she's not sleeping. (laughs) Now you guys know what to pray for. Awesome. Welcome. Congratulations. Everything's good, right? Everything's good, baby-wise? All right, I'll turn it over to Tammy for a second. I'm sorry, I'm taking a little bit of liberty. I just wanted to add on to something Daniel said about these young people that just came back from camp. And church, I want to challenge you that if you know one of these young people that went to camp, dig into their lives a little bit and ask them, like, we need to have a conversation because we didn't get to finish because there wasn't enough time during greeting. So we want to know as a church, as your parents, grandparents, family, but as your church body, we want to know what changed your life this week. What What jokes did Steve Pickett tell that he's never told before, right? We want to hear. So I just want to challenge us as a church to ask kids questions, good questions. We had five leaders that went. I'm sure leaders, it was life-changing and exhausting, but, but there is that. So just be asking those kids, and kids, share with your friends what God did and what it's like to spend a week specifically with Jesus for the whole week. So um, I'm excited to hear all of your stories. So let's be asking them about good things that are happening. All right. Absolutely. Uh, I have a question before we get started, and I'm not preaching this morning, but I want to know who has experienced, who's experienced a work of God in your life that is miraculous? Raise your hand. I mean, all right, we got the majority of hands are up. Who needs to experience, or who's looking for God to do something? We used to say, and we still say, the things that only God can do, right? I, like, I consider those things to be miraculous. I can do things, you know, I can do work stuff, I can do stuff in the community, but I'm, we're looking for things that only God can do. I want to introduce you to a great friend of mine. Uh, we call him the second son. 
We kind of refer to the Donnelly kids that way in the Hopkins house. Blake, Sammy Donnelly, come on up. Blake's going to share their, uh, I don't know how much, you're going to, I'm not sure what you're going to share about, but these two, these two have had a mighty work of God in their lives. They shared a couple years ago? Last year. year last year, yeah. last year. Almost and uh, and it was a pretty intense story. And it just goes to show you that God can do anything yeah. when we yield to him. Amen? Amen. Amen. Here's Blake and Sammy Donna. Give him a hand. Wow. Thank you guys so much for being here. As I, I, I just was weeping this morning and worship because I look around the room. And as we sing about testimony and as we're getting ready to share testimony, I see so many people in here who are a part of our testimony and who poured into our lives when we were little kids running amok around here. Stan, <laughs> Busby and his family, you know, Climbers with Christ and all the Awana leaders and the pastors and everybody that really walked through our life with us. And so first, I just want to thank you. And it's a really humbling experience to be here and to share what the Lord's done over the last year. Um, and I had a couple of thoughts that I wanted to share really quick before I let my, my wife share our, our testimony. Raise your hand if you haven't heard our testimony, our personal testimony. Okay, awesome. You're in for a ride because my wife does an amazing job at sharing what the Lord's done. But before I do that, uh, I have a really good friend in Virginia Beach. He's with the Special Operations Command, and he loves the Lord, but he said to me one time, he goes, man, if I go into a, if I visit a church and the speaker doesn't read from the Bible in the first five minutes, I walk out. And so I'm going to read some verses really quick to honor him because I love him. He's actually paralyzed right now from the waist down because of a gunfight with the Taliban, but um, I'm going to read from Psalm 107. It says, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. Those he redeemed from the hand of the foe, those he gathered from the lands in the east and the west, from the north and the south. Some wandered in desert wastelands, finding no way to a city where they could settle. They were hungry and thirsty, and their lives ebbed away. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by the straight way to a city where they could settle. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love. And I'll skip over. I won't read the whole thing because it's pretty long. But in the end, in verse 31, it says, let them give thanks to the Lord. It says that throughout the, throughout the chapter. Give thanks to the Lord and tell your story. And it says, let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. Let them exalt him in the assembly of the people and praise him in the council of elders. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to, everything that we share is what God's done in our lives. And a lot of it we see in scripture. So I'll get back into the word. You know, when Josh asked me to, to speak, he goes, hey, you're going to bring the word. And I was like, oh man, I got to bring the word. What does that mean? Well, I think we're one with the Lord and he is the, he is the, the word. He's the living word. And so a lot of what we're talking about is testimony, and it's our story, but it's his story that he's given to us to share. And so without uh, further ado, I'll let my wife share our testimony. This is my wife, Samantha. We have four girls, our oldest, Victoria. You want to stand up or raise your hand? She's 10 years old. Olivia, you can stand up. She's eight, just turned eight. And then Joanna is running around in children's church, so maybe not running around, probably still running around. 
Um, she's five years old, just turned five, and then our youngest, Selah, is one. So thank you for having us, and here is my wife. Cool. Hi, guys. Okay, sounds good. Um, I'm just going to pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this time. We just commit it to you, and I just thank you for the testimony that you've given us, and we just pray to bring you glory today. Glory in our testimony, and I just pray that you would come and minister to the hearts in this room, and we just pray your blessing and outpouring of your spirit in Jesus' name. So, um, it's pretty amazing to get to go around and share what God has done in our lives. And it's not just for us, it's for everybody. So, I just want to encourage you that when you have a testimony to share, no matter, like, if you've been following the Lord since you were a little girl or a little boy, or if you did a miracle in your life, share it, because it's going to bring somebody hope. Um, so for us, we grew up, well, Blake grew up here, and I love that because we get to come, and a lot of you guys know him as a, as a kid, like he was saying. We met in high school. We are running start students at the community college. We both grew up in Christian homes, and we were going to youth group. Um, I was a part of this youth group for a while, and our kids did Awana here once we were married a few years later. And um, also in Colville, we went to a youth group. And we, yeah, I mean, we were on fire for the Lord. We were running with other Christians and believers. But um, there was a difference in how we had a relationship with the Lord. Um, Blake, his relationship with the Lord looked a lot different than mine. And we ended up um, getting pregnant in our senior year of high school and with Victoria. And we decided to get married. And there was a lot of um, controversy in the church about it, of course, which is fine. And Blake felt just, um, he felt kind of rejected by God in the process. So after we got married, um, since that wasn't his solid rock and he felt just kind of shattered, he started to run. He ran from family, he ran from God, he ran from responsibility. And that took him down a path of drugs and alcohol and infidelity. And the really cool thing about all that is that God completely had a plan. He had a plan for our lives. He had a plan of redemption. His word, that's what his word promises us. And so nothing that he grew up in, the, the seeds that were planted in his heart were lost. God was going to use all those things for a greater purpose. So we went through about eight years of just chaos and darkness and um, me just me and my family just really praying and his family and people he knew praying and interceding for our marriage and for his life and he was searching for his identity and he thought that he found it when he became a navy seal that became his identity and he just got wrapped up in this world um, where a lot of them are pretty um, well godless but they also kind of see themselves as god so it can be kind of a toxic community, um, but it's also, it can also be a really great community. They do a lot, and it's amazing what they do, and it's an amazing accomplishment what he achieved, but he was doing it all for him. And so when you do something for yourself, it's a little different than doing it for God and bringing him glory. But um, about two years into this, I just found out that... Um, that we were moving from the West Coast to the East Coast, and I was pregnant with our third child, Joanna. And 
as we moved there, found out that my husband was again having an affair, and I got there and I said, Lord, why did you bring me here? You could have left me in Washington. I was visiting family. I was fine on my own, and you bring me here. And he said to me, I'm uh, asking you to forgive him the sin, his sin as far as the east is from the west, and I want you to stay. So I said, okay, I'm going to stay. So the next two years, I feel like God really covered me and the girls in his grace, and we stayed, and Blake was gone um, on deployments or constantly gone for workups, and it was like two years, and he just wasn't home. And it got to the point where we didn't have church, we didn't have a healthy community, and I felt the Lord start to pull me in and draw me in to his presence again and say, hey, you need to come back to intimacy with me in a deeper way. And so as he called me into intimacy again and spending you know, my morning time with him and abiding in his presence and his love, um, he started to reveal things to me. And he put in my heart to start a women's group with some of the wives and the girlfriends. And that became kind of our anchor, mine and the girls, for the next two years. Just our anchor and really growth. So we got this place of community where we're growing. And then pretty soon, things get really emotionally um, abusive and disconnected with Blake. And he's, he's just living this other life. And um, there's a lot of just darkness that starts to come into the light when you're living these things and eventually they surface. And as those things were surfacing, the Lord started to give me dreams and visions of what he was doing. And I would confront him and he would tell me, you, you're not hearing from God, those things aren't true, yada, yada, yada. And so it got to the point where I was like, wow, I can't, I can't be here on my own um, because I know that there's other men and, and the wives and the girlfriends that I'm living life with, their husbands and boyfriends are out doing the same things together. And so I ended up coming back here to this area and just being with family to get refreshed. And while I was here, the Lord said, um, he spoke through my dad, and my dad was like, I feel like you need to let go of Blake and give your heart to the Lord. And I was like, haven't I been doing this for eight years, again and again, this cycle? And I, and I said, okay. So I went and I prayed, and I took it before the Lord. And I felt God, I felt him give me a vision of our family in his hands. And he said, I'm cutting off the old covenant, and I'm bringing you and Blake into a new one. And it filled me with such hope and such joy in this moment of darkness and chaos that it didn't make sense at all, but that was his promise to me. So... Um, a couple days later, I get a call from Blake, and he's getting kicked out of the Navy for drugs and alcohol and getting sent to rehab. There was a big drug bust. You can read an article about it in the Navy Times or whatever. It's not very accurate, but basically they pinned this whole thing on Blake, and he was the mastermind, and he was the drug dealer, and he drugged all his buddies, and um, he was the only one who came clean of it. He had no plan of telling the truth, but the Holy Spirit... Um, intervened, and he couldn't tell a lie when he got before the, the people who were questioning him. So he ended up, you know, before trial, so he ended up confessing everything that he had been doing, all the sin he was living in, and getting sent to rehab. So um, we show up in Virginia Beach right as this is all happening, and everything's out on the table. He's doing drugs in the house. Our 10-year-old, or she was eight or seven or eight at the time, was hiding alcohol from him. Um, he was suicidal, depressed, just 
at the end of it. And what really broke the camel's back was when his best friend, who was a new guy at the team, he had just gotten there, he just gotten his trident, that whole identity thing we're talking about, um, he committed suicide. And Blake found him. And he had shot himself in the head. <laughs> and it was that moment that Blake snapped. And so they said, we have to get this guy into rehab now. So as he was going into rehab, he was telling me he wanted a divorce. And so I said, okay, God, if I have to be a single mom of three kids, you're going to provide. I'm going to trust you with this. And I told my mom the next day, hey, I think we're coming home. I think this is it. And then that day, Blake calls me at a rehab, and he says, hey, I really need to talk to you. Will you come and see me? And he's not allowed to have visitors yet. He's been there, like, less than a week. <laughs> and so I'm like, okay, sure. And so what happened was his psychologist was a Christian, and um, she said, hey, it says here that when you enter the Navy, you put your religious preference as Christian. And um, he was like, how dare you bring that up? And just kind of threw it in her face. He was like, I don't even believe in God. And just got really angry. And she said, well, I think that you need to ask God where he's been your whole life. And he couldn't get that out of his head. So that night, he went into his room, anger, just full of anger and mad that she was talking about this, and just said, Lord, where have you been my whole life? And then he heard God, and God said, I've been here the whole time. Where have you been? And it wasn't a scolding. God is loving. And he said, you know, he was drawing him, his son home. And so in that moment, Blake knew that God was real, that he could trust God. And if that's what God could do with five seconds of his life, what could he do with the rest of his life? So just him and the Lord, there in that moment, he gave his life back to the Lord and was completely set free of all the years of addiction, of all those things that were holding on to him. And that's the power of the cross. That's the power of the resurrection of Jesus. Yeah. Guys, this isn't, this isn't just for us. This is for everybody in the world who believes in the name of Jesus as their Savior. He came to save us and then to be resurrected from the dead so we can walk through that same door that he walked through and get set free of every sin. So we've been set free of our sin. And you're about to witness that through the testimony that the Lord's done in the past year, through the testimony that we get to share here on stage. And it's for everybody. Whether you're struggling with pornography or drug addiction or or um, whether you're struggling with depression, okay? These things, these things are, we're meant to walk free of these things when we walk into the Lord's kingdom, and that's what's living inside of us. The Holy Spirit gives us the power to do that and to live that out. We're given the power to live and to walk in freedom, and I think that if the world got a vision of a church who was walking in freedom and not just preaching it, like Paul said, then we would be walking in freedom and we would be setting other people free. Not us, but the Holy Spirit in us. Christ lives his life in us and through us. So, sorry, anyway. <coughs> it's pretty awesome. <laughs> so, anyway, I show up to rehab and um, Blake opens my door and I get out and he gives me this hug and I just feel like this lightness about him. And he looks me in the eyes, and they're just, they're sparkling. Something that's never been there before is there. 
And he says to me, I've made a vow of integrity for the first time in my life to you and to God. And I knew in that moment that this was it. And I, I had never felt that way before. And so I went home and we started uh, working on our marriage together, reading a book called Sacred Marriage Together while he was in rehab. Once he got out of rehab, um, I wasn't working. I was a homeschool mom. And he wasn't working because he was getting out of the Navy. But the Holy Spirit showed up in our lives and in our home. And every morning we would spend four or five hours together abiding and praying and worshiping. And the Lord would just bring scriptures alive and bring healing to our hearts and our lives, just redeeming and reconciling every part of our marriage every part of our family, everything. And that's what happens when you fully surrender, you fully submerge yourself in the blood of the, Christ, of the cross, and um, you fully yield your heart, mind, soul, and body. It's his. He had it all. We said, we don't want anything else. You are everything, and we yield to you. Have your way. And so through that, he, God can use that, and he can work through that, and he can bring healing and redemption in your life. And um, as, we, as we did that, we were like, well, what's next? And so I started thinking, well, I've never like, done anything for myself. I want to be a personal trainer on the side. And he's like, go for it. So I start working at a gym. My boss is a Christian. Blake starts coming in. He's on fire for the Lord. He's praying for people. My boss is loving it. He's calling him into his office. He's like, hey, pray for this guy. And he starts seeing healings and miracles working. And um, pretty soon he's like, hey, Blake, I want you to work here. So within nine months, Blake was running the place. He ha became my boss's position and they moved my boss somewhere else. So Blake was running the gym. We had this ministry. All these people who are, um, were training are starting to come to our small group. We have this young adults group on Friday nights and they're just experiencing the Lord for the first time. People are getting saved. People are getting healed. People are, um, yeah, just receiving Christ. And it's amazing. We just said, Holy Spirit, come have your way. So then quarantine hits and it's kind of like, whoa, church stops. But we felt the Lord say, keep meeting. And all of a sudden, people are hungry. And all of a sudden, our house can't contain the amount of people that are coming. <laughs> and so we start moving it to larger places and parks and other areas. And people are getting baptized and people are coming to the Lord. And we go, okay, God, what are you doing here? And um, Blake starts wrestling with this whole idea that there's more and that he's getting bored of sitting behind a desk. And he's watching all these survival shows, and like, hey, I was a medic and a sniper, and I love adventure. Like, what am I doing? And then his buddy was like, hey, well, what do you, what do you think God was doing with you in the, in the SEAL teams? And Blake was like, oh, he just you know, wanted me to get to the end of myself. And his friend was like, no, he wants to redeem that too. So um, pretty soon, uh, we were watching the FBR film, and I was like eight months pregnant with Selah. And after we saw the documentary, how many of you have seen the documentary? Yeah, okay, well, if you haven't seen it, go ahead and watch it. It's really, really good, really well done. And uh, we're watching the documentary, and I turned in at the end, and we're both crying, and the girls watched it with us. And it's kind of graphic, so, you know, to your own discretion. But I said, we've got to go help those people. Within um, just a few weeks, we had talked to Dave Eubake, the founder, and he invited us to Thailand, and we were serious. We got confirmation after confirmation that this is what the Lord had for us, and we just said yes, and just started going through the door. Um, we started 
traveling the U.S. to raise support. We were here last year sharing our testimony, and God took that and completely blessed it and has us now working in Burma, Thailand, Syria, Iraq, and um, this past year has been an incredible incredible experience to see our family grow and thrive and what the Lord's done. So I'm going to stop talking and hand the mic over to my husband, who's going to get into what the last year looked like with the slideshow. Oh, really quick, can you play that video? This video uh, was last October. Blake went into Syria by himself to just kind of check it out and make sure this is what we were called into. And this video, just to me, it's one of our most powerful videos because it shows what God did with Blake's talent and his skills that nothing was wasted and how amazing it is that now he's using those same skills and talents for the kingdom of God. Um, I'm going to stand down here as I talk. I just feel like I don't want to be on a pedestal. Not that that's a pedestal. I just would rather be down here. Um, yeah, so I say this every time that I've heard that testimony of our life and our marriage and God's restoration. I say I've heard that more than anybody because I have. I've lived it, and it's still just, man, <laughs> it's really amazing. We should never, ever forget what the Lord's done in our own life. And always tell your testimony because that's what God's given you. 
And God's given every single one of you a story, and he's given you a testimony. So share it with everybody. Every time you get the chance, share your testimony. That's what we have to witness to people and to share God's love with people. And, you know, in, in the, some, of those, some of the scenes in that video, we're on the front line in Syria. There's mortars going off. There's women and children. And my, my nerves are cool, calm, and collected. I'm perfectly fine. When I get up here to talk in front of people, my heart starts to just beat out of my chest. And so I talk a lot about fear and a lot about comfort everywhere I go. And so this is my version of being uncomfortable and allowing the Holy Spirit to work through me because he's the comforter. The word paracletus means comforter. So if we allow him to be our comforter, then he's working through us. And so it looks different for everybody, but this is where I get to practice what I preach of being uncomfortable and uh, overcoming fear of man and and so yeah man I, I I had a thought yesterday actually we were out tubing on the lake out at Waits Lake and I had Robbie on the tube and he was going way too fast I was driving so it was m completely my fault but he's ripping around and I, he just has a big smile on his face Woo! and I just had this thought man fear is the enemy Fear keeps us from the joy of the Lord. And as I look back on the tube, what, what my little niece was on before, she was terrified. She was crying. She was not having any joy. But then I look at Robbie, and he's not afraid at all. He's completely filled with joy. And I thought, the enemy's number one tactic for us is to get us afraid so that we can't be experiencing and living in the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. Nehemiah 8.10 says joy of the Lord is our strength. And so if we don't have any joy, then we're weak Christians. And so every day of my life, I want to wake up and I ask myself, what are you afraid of? And if it isn't the Lord, because in Proverbs it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So if it isn't the Lord that I'm fearing, then I want to crush that fear. I want to stomp that fear. And I want to walk in freedom and in power because God hasn't given us a spirit of fear but of love and of power and a sound mind. And those verses are so confirmed. And it's amazing, you know, our testimony. I memorized those verses in Awana. A lot of you got back from Awana camp. I used to go to Awana camp. I think I went every year except for my senior year, which is supposed to be like the best year. I missed that year because I was running from the Lord. But don't ever forget where you came from. And those verses, they're going to be implanted forever. Even if you forget, the, you think you forgot the verse that you learned earlier in the year, you didn't. It's written on your heart and it'll come back to you. That's the only way I can stand up here and quote scriptures because I memorized it at one point. It's not because um, I read it once. It's because I memorized it. I planted it on my heart. And so that, uh, that verse, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of power of love and a sound mind. Those are verses that I, I want to live by. And it also says in John 15 that people won't know us because of our knowledge. It doesn't say people are going to know you because of how much you know. It says they're going to know you by your love. And so if we don't have any love, then people won't know we're Christians. And again, as I was driving the other day, I had this thought. No, it was, it was in my quiet time with the Lord. I had the thought... And I have a lot of thoughts. My mind kind of goes a million miles an hour. You'll see that as I bounce around from subject to subject this morning. 
But I had this thought, and it, it was, you are what you eat. We've all, we've all heard that phrase, you are what you eat. And so I Googled it. Where did this come from? And it was a German doctor who was a dietitian years and years ago. He, he used to sit in front of a client, and he said, tell me what you eat, and I'll tell, I'll tell you what you are, what you're made of. And then I had another thought that the, the word of the Lord is the bread of life. God is our bread. And we're to feast on him and to fill ourselves with the bread of life. And then I thought, wow, as Christians, if people don't know that we're Christians because of our love or because of the way that we act, then are we walking in the fullness of our salvation? And so it's convicting for me all the time. I want to point my life to Jesus. I want people to look at me and to know me because of Christ in me. And so I just wanted to share that before I get into the testimony of this last year is our lives, wherever we're at, whoever's in front of us, they want, we want to reflect Christ in us with whatever we do, with the way that we talk, with the way that we treat our children, raise our children. And um, it's all just a learning process with the Lord. And he has so much love and, and we want to be recognized by our love. And the verse that really is, is our token verse for, for our ministry and for our lives is that greater love has no man than to lay down his life for his brother, his friend, his neighbor, depending on the translation that you read. And I read that, and one time, the translation that I was reading, it said neighbor. And I read all different translations, and I read parallels, and I, I want to read, I want to absorb what the scripture has for me, the Aramaic, all of it. And one of the translations said neighbor, and the Lord knew that because the day before that we were on a hike, we were walking, and my youngest, who was four at the time, every time we'd walk by somebody, I'd say, hey, how are you doing? You know, and I'd talk to them. If they would stop and talk, I'd talk to them. And then they'd pass by, and Joanna, after they would go on, she would go, is that our neighbor? And I'm like, no, no, that's just someone, I don't know who that is. You know, we just... And she asked that like four or five times on the hike as I would say hello to someone. Sometimes there wasn't a conversation, but she'd go, is that our neighbor? And then finally I got it. I was like, you know what, Joanna, that is our neighbor because everyone is our neighbor. We don't get to decide, you know, who our brothers and sisters are. We all come from two people. <laughs> and they came from one, the creator. And so we're all created in one image. And... I thought, wow, that was the first kind of like time I, I looked at my daughter and I said, I have so much to learn from you. She's four, and I have so much to learn from her because they have the same Holy Spirit that we do. They don't get a junior Holy Spirit. They have the same Jesus that lives in us. And so that's the testimony of our last year. We believe that what we were supposed to do was bring our family everywhere we went and that the ministry and the testimony was in our family. And some of the places the world would look at and go, you're crazy to bring your family there. And we are, because the Bible says that it looks like foolishness to the world. But in our hearts, we know who our king is, and we know who we serve. And so it started out in January. We go to the Norfolk airport, all of us, all six of us, Sayla is three months old. We load up our bags. We walk into the ticket counter, and we show her that we have tickets to Iraq. 
And the lady at the ticket counter was like, this says Iraq, is this correct? You know, she's looking at my family, four girls, my wife. I said, yeah, it's a beautiful place. Have you ever been there? <laughs> she goes, no, I've not been there and I don't think I'll go. I said, well, if you get a chance, I know the news says one thing, but there's some really beautiful places and it's biblically historical and I'm just talking to her about it. I said, you should really get the chance. If you get the chance, you should go. And she's like, no, I'm going to stay here. I was like, all right. So we board the plane. We land in Iraq. The girls immediately are met by one of our ethnic families who has four girls the same age. They speak a little bit of English, mostly Arabic and Kurdish. So right away, they're very close with each other. And we were so thankful for that because um, it's really important that our girls are healthy. Spiritually, physically, we want them to thrive in those environments. We don't want it to be, hey, this is a mom and dad's good idea. We want this to be, hey, this is your dad's idea, showing you how life looks when you follow him. And so we were super thankful for that right away. And then we got the chance to go, okay, so there's going to be some pictures that'll help me stay in the guidelines. How long do I have? Josh said I had three hours. Is that okay? Um, I heard Mark likes to go over, so I'll go a little bit over here with him. <laughs> uh, so we got the chance right away to go into Syria. What's happening in Syria, there's a front line against ISIS, against Turkey, against all these fighting forces who are fighting over land. They're fighting over race. They're fighting over religion. And if there's one major difference between the Middle East and Burma, it's the fight over religion. It's an ideology. And when you have someone who believes so much that they're right in their religion, that they pack their family to go fight on the front lines and pack kids and their wives and they live right there on the front line so they can join ISIS and fight with them. That's an ideology. They believe so much. I mean, imagine taking your kids somewhere to fight a war because you thought you were right. And that's what we're called to as Christians, really. We're called to the front lines um, of whatever, that, whatever front line it is. But we're, we're called to, to, to believe so much that we'll pack up our own life and, and fight. But that's what they believe. And so we show up. A lot of these families, most of them, actually about 100% of these families, live right on the front line. They have nowhere to go. They either live in a refugee camp slightly off of the front line, or they stay in their homes. And their homes are targeted by rockets, mortars, airstrikes, you name it, every single night. And so they go out into the desert with their kids. You saw in the previous picture there was a pregnant mother who had four kids. They go hide in the desert. No food, no water, no blankets. And they sleep there in the freezing cold. And then during the day, they go back to their homes and they live life like normal. This group, this village of about 34 people, had not seen any help, any foreign aid, any anything in like just over a year Excuse me. until we showed up. And so we were met with very open arms. They wanted everything we, we had, as little as we could give them. And 
we just wanted to point them to Jesus. And so we did a food distribution. And one of the testimonies, I don't know if any of you read our newsletters. Sammy does an amazing job putting out newsletters every month. And it talks about a lot of this stuff. So, so for some of you, this is repetitive. But I want to share this testimony because it's uh, what God does. He loves these people. He, you know, we, media and, and the enemy, again, he gets us to fear. He, gets, he puts us in a place of fear so that all we can do, we have our own little opinion and our own little box that we live in that's so filled with fear that we don't know what's going on outside of that box. And so these, God loves these people, and here's a testimony how I know why. We did a food distribution, and we counted the number of families. There was 34 families that we were going to get food for. And in the Middle East, if you don't have experience doing food distributions there or any kind of where you give stuff out, it becomes a riot almost immediately because they're very narrow. They, they don't think about the next day and the next day. They want whatever they can get right now. And I can't really blame them, but it becomes a riot very fast. And so we had to do this uh, very strategically. We had the exact number of food lined up behind the building where they couldn't see it in, in little bundles. We had 37 bundles lined up. And then we had the families show up, and there was 42 families. And they're like, oh, no, what are we going to do? All right, well, let's just pray. We prayed. We prayed with all of them. We got to say, hey, God loves you. This is the only reason we're here is because Jesus sent us to, to bless you with this food. And we pray, and I just said, you know, it's going to be okay. And we start passing people through the line. And we're getting to, like, the last people. And I poke around the corner. And there's still food left. And again, these were in bundles. We had 37 separate bundles. It wasn't like it was all in a truck. It was bundles. There was 37 bundles. There was no other food anywhere else. And the last person rolls through, the 42nd family, and they take the very last bundle. And I was like, are you kidding me, Lord? You multiplied the food. And I didn't even get to see it. I wasn't like look, staring at it, watching it multiply. But I knew that he had multiplied it. And there was, actually there was one more bundle. There was, there was one bundle left over and there was a family living in, because you can pretty much live wherever you want there. If it's an empty house, you, you take it because it's probably going to get hit with an airstrike in the next week anyway. And so there was a family living in this house where we did the distribution, and they came out. They'd seen we did the distribution. They said, do you have any more food? And we're like, actually, yes, we do. We have this one last bundle. And we got to pray with them and tell them that Jesus multiplied the food so that they could have food. And just testimonies like that happen over and over. And we had two ethnic Syrian Muslims who live in a refugee camp. They came to volunteer with us. They're the two... Uh, just in from the, if I'm looking at the screen, it's on the right side, the two men standing next to the guy holding the peace sign. I rode with one of them in a truck for like seven days all across the Syrian desert, and he had no choice but to listen to me talk about Jesus. Fortunately, he was asking question after question after question, and I got to just talk to him, and he got to see the way that we were living and the way that we loved his people. And at the end, I pulled the two aside and said, hey, do you guys want to make Jesus the Lord of your life. And without even skipping a beat, they immediately wanted to know Jesus. And so I got to lead them to Jesus. And now those two guys lead a men's Bible study in their refugee camp. Just because of love. We didn't go hit them over the head with the Bible. We just did life with them. 
We walked with them. We talked with them. We showed them what we were all about. And we try to do that. We mess it up a lot, too. But we try to do that to the best of our ability and just love people. Because if we don't do it for love, then we're doing it for all the wrong reasons. And so there's, here's uh, the girls in Iraq. Amazing. That's one of the top military leaders of the Peshmerga. Um, pretty incredible that our kids uh, get to go and meet these top military leaders that even if you're like a high-ranking U.S. military officer, you don't even get to meet with some of these guys. And our kids are hanging out with them. Here's a story. I want you to stop at this picture real quick. So Iraq is um, broken up into a couple of different regions, and so they have different visas. To get into Baghdad or into Mosul, you need an Iraq visa instead of a Kurdish visa or a KRG visa. And so we felt that we were supposed to go to this memorial service for the Yazidi people, which were a, it was a mass genocide. I don't know if you guys know anything about the Yazidis, but the women and children were sold into sex slavery. They were raped by ISIS. They have kids that are the product of that. And it's been a horrible, horrible human violation. And they were having a a uh, memorial service for all of the people that had died and it was in Mosul and we're like well let's go to Mosul we didn't have visas but we had friends in Mosul and we wanted to go visit them and so all there's 16 checkpoints from where we were at to Mosul and every single one of them is the Hashtashabi which if you don't know who they are they're very anti-western and when I say anti-western it's anti-christian they still think of this country as a Christian nation, even though we can look at it and go, we don't know anymore. But they think, that's when, when they say anti-Western, they're anti-Christian, so they're anti-us. And they have an open, they can arrest you, they can detain you, they can capture, they can kill. They can do whatever they want at these checkpoints. And we thought, nope, we're going. We prayed about it, we had peace. And so the very first checkpoint, the two guys that look really upset, well, one of them's kind of half-smiling, well, it's the only ethnics in the group. Everybody else is white. So those two guys <laughs> were the checkpoint. And I said, girls, jump out of the car and go give those guys a hug. And so they jump out, and they ran up, and they give these guys a hug, and immediately they're smiling. In the picture, they're not, because they knew it was a picture, and they wanted to be all hard and tough. But they're filled with joy, and they're holding the babies. They're picking up the babies and holding them and taking selfies and pictures. And this guy was like, super happy before this picture and he wanted to look very stoic in the picture and it was amazing to watch and we prayed with them we told them about Jesus and they were like man we're really sorry we can't let you through this checkpoint we want you to go but we would get in serious trouble if we let you guys through so we were blocked from going to Mosul but not before we got to witness to these guys and at the end this guy he grabs my phone he goes no 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 you can't have these pictures. And he grabs my phone and he deletes my pictures. But fortunately, there's a recently deleted album <laughs> that he didn't know about. So don't take any pictures of these because I want to honor him. But I did want to share the testimony behind those pictures because those guys are supposed to hate us. And they wouldn't know what Jesus looks like if we hadn't said, hey, we're supposed to go to Mosul. And God knew about those two guys. And that guy still texts me today, like a lot. He'll, he'll go a while, and then he'll send me like 50 two-word text messages. Ding, 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 ding. Anyways, 
I just wanted to share that because it looks really scary on the outside, but they don't know what they hate. They just are told, oh, hate these guys because of this. But they don't even know. They love you, and they don't even know. They love uh, that we're there with our family. Here's some more pictures of the Middle East. I'll kind of con uh, speed it up a little bit. Again, Middle East, huge family. The girls, there's some of their, their friends there. Um, so we, we wrapped it up in the Middle East after being there for about a month and a half. There's the last day. And then we, were, we had plans to get into Thailand. Now, because of COVID, Thailand shut down. It had been shut down for pretty much a year. And fortunately, in the Middle East, war has kept COVID from shutting things down. So we were able to get in there pretty easily. And into Syria, they're like, you want to help us? Come in. <laughs> <laughs> Thailand's like, uh, no, you probably have COVID and you want to make us sick. So you have to quarantine for 14 days and do all this paperwork. And normally as an American, you can fly into Thailand, you land, you get a visa, you go in. Not anymore. Now you have to apply for specific paperwork, very specific dates, like one single date. And it takes a couple of weeks to get that paperwork. So we were applying for this all while we were getting ready to leave the Middle East. We board the plane. We have our certificate of entry, which is that piece of paper. We have our visas. We're on the plane. We're taxiing down the runway. And the plane stops. We're literally like, ta we're getting ready to take off. And we're like, oh, man, what is it now? They don't tell us anything for like two hours. We're just sitting on the plane. But we were able to get on our phones and see that three rockets had just come in from the same group that is supposedly so anti-Western. Same Hashishabi group, three rockets, had just hit the airfield. Now the US military has a presence right there at the Erbil airport, so that's probably who they were targeting. However, it hit right in front of our airplane. And so the, the airport shut down for 24 hours, and Jojo, our youngest, she had fallen asleep. And we wake her up to get off the plane, and she's like, are we in Thailand already? <laughs> like, no, I'm sorry. Some Rockets just hit the airport, and we had to get off the plane. She's like, okay, it's like 3 in the morning. We get off, and now we're like, well, now what? We have to reapply for all these certificates of entry. And so we did that, and as we're waiting, the, U the Thai embassy gets back to me. They said, no, you don't need to reapply. It's good for 72 hours. Well, it had been about 48 hours to that point when I got the email. So we rushed to the airport. We get on, and... There's a whole line of things that happen next of like, oh, this, no, that's not accurate. You do have to have the exact date. And we're like, no, we have this email. And so just lots of talking, lots of prayer. And then finally, about 16 hours later, we landed in Thailand. We got quickly escorted to our 14-day hotel quarantine where we were not locked in one room, but two, because we have more than six or more than four people. We have six in our family, so they had to put us in two rooms. And we can't leave our room. We had to take COVID, so many COVID tests. I mean, it's ridiculous. Never got a positive COVID test, which is a miracle with the way that those things go. Um, and we're locked in these rooms. And you get room service. You can't even get food. They drop the food off at your door. They ring the doorbell, and they run away. Totally afraid in, like, these hazmat suits. And our air conditioning went out one time in one room. <laughs> and they're like... They made us get all into the other room, and, they're, and it's just—it's crazy how afraid people are of this virus. And 
but we just loved them the whole time and got to pray with them and got to spend 14 days locked in. Normally, as a parent, being locked in a room with your kids would be terrifying. And it was for us. We're like, oh, man, how are we going to get through this? We're buying, like, games and, you know, stuff to do. And it was just awesome. It was really refreshing to be there with the kids. And we got to do these workouts in the room. And all of them were doing it with us. And it was awesome. So we get to Thailand. We get through that four, 14 days of craziness. And then while all that was happening, there was a coup in Burma. So that's where most, the majority of our organization works, is inside Burma and Iraq and Syria. So you can see in this map, I'm going to explain brief, brief history. You have the ethnic areas. They're the dark outlying areas. You have Shan, Kachin, Karin, Kareni. You have all these regions that used to be tribes. They were made up of tribal people. And then they decided at one point they wanted to be a democracy, have their own government, and so they call themselves states now. So those outlying areas, they are recognized as states. They recognize themselves as states and as a democracy. However, the inside is the Burman Plains, and it's pretty much run, it is run by the Burma government, the Burma army, the Burma police, which is a dictatorship. And for 75 years, they've been fighting over this. They've been fighting over race, religion, Air, uh, um, location, terrain, and eight years ago there was a ceasefire. They said, "Hey, we're done fighting. We're going to recognize you guys as a government. You guys can set, you can do your own thing." Now, be, if you fight for 75 years and then all of a sudden you say, "Hey, we're going to stop fighting," it doesn't really work because you have so much history of war that fighting never really stopped, but on paper and on the news, it kind of did slow down a little bit, and people were able to get, international community was able to help huge, big time with the IDPs and the refugees there. But in February, on February 1st, a couple of days before we landed in Thailand, there was a coup. The Burma army arrested, kidnapped, and killed pretty much the majority of those ethnic leaders that called themselves the government. And they said, the ceasefire is over. You guys are going to, we're going to fight until you surrender your territory or recognize that you're no longer a democracy. And so we were fortunate enough to land there right when that happened. It's amazing how that happens. And so right away, the need was huge. There was over 100,000 displaced people within like two days. What the good thing that came of this was in the city, this whole time, there's been people who are Burmans. They, they call themselves Burmans, and then they call everybody else the ethnics. So it's kind of a race war as well. The Burmans have normal jobs. It's a normal city. They kind of cooperate and interact with the government on a personable level, but they don't, not all of them agree with what's happening. Well, when the coup happened, they said, we disagree with this. We think the ethnics should still be able to have their democracy. And we're going to protest. And so all of these young kids filled with fire in their veins for their country started to protest. And it, it didn't go very well. The government said, we don't like this. They started to mow them down, <coughs> machine guns, shoot rockets into the protests. And all these kids now are like, whoa, our government is not who they say they are. And they ran into the ethnic areas. They didn't know where else to go. Now they all had arrest warrants. They had death threats from the government. They said, if you come back, we're going to kill you. We're going to kill your family. And they had proof to back it up because thousands were being slaughtered, killed, executed as 
hey, this is what's going to happen if you don't bow to us. And so what they did was they ran into the ethnic areas. But because, again, it's a 75-year war, the ethnics said, hey, we don't want you. We don't trust you. You guys are not the good guys. This is not okay. We're, we, we, we're going to just kind of corral you up in this little area. And they didn't know what to do with them. Well, Dave, who's been in and out of Burma and knows the ethnic leaders very, very well, said, hey, he held a meeting, and he was like, what are we going to do with these guys? They were calling themselves, it was like 18 to 30-year-olds who were calling themselves the CDM, which is the Civil Disobedience Movement. It would be like Antifa, but justified. <laughs> and so you have all these young kids who are like so fed up with the government and are tired of seeing all of their brothers and sisters and their kinsmen killed. And now they're in these ethnic areas, corralled up, and they can't do anything now because they can't go back to the city. The ethnics can't do anything with them because they don't trust them. And so Dave said, hey, what are we going to do with these guys? And they said, well, can you train them? And I was in that meeting when they asked us to train them. We we're like, well, what are we going to train them in? And, and we didn't really know, but we prayed. And we felt the Lord say, go for it, because this was a group of people that FBR, the Free Burma Rangers, had never gotten to work with. And so for the first time ever, it was actually Free Burma Rangers, because prior to that, no Burmans wanted anything to do with any ceasefire. And so we said, okay, we'll train them. So we met 200 of these kids who were, it's like city slickers. It'd be, imagine if a bunch of Seattle kids came from their colleges and their normal jobs and came out to, you know, Stevens County, and now all of a sudden they have to do stuff. <laughs> They're out of their element. We'll just say that. Totally out of their element. So we sit these guys down, and we're like, right away we pray with them. We tell them why we're there, and we said, you know, nothing's going to change in your country if you don't do it for love. Whatever you do, you have to do it for love. And we explained why we're doing it for love. And they were like, we're like, what can we train you in? What can we, how can we help you? And they're like, well, we want to make bombs, and we want to know how to shoot guns, all these things. And we're like, okay, we can't really teach you how to do all that stuff, but we can teach you medicine. We can teach you how to climb, repel, and lower a patient down a cliff. Because if you run into the jungle, you'll see, I don't know if you saw any of that terrain in some of the pictures. It's like 5,000 feet up, 5,000 feet down, 5,000 feet up. You know, to go five miles into the jungle takes... 20 hours. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's so, so hard. And eventually you come to a cliff, and if you get cliffed out and you don't know how to go down or don't know how to get your grandmother down or your kids, then you have to go back the way you came, and it's a really sticky situation. So we said, hey, we can train you in all of these things. And they said, okay, yeah, let's do that. So we trained them for two weeks and then sent them back into the city, and we said, if you have one person, then you'll be happy, and they'll be happy, and you'll have done your job. Well, they didn't just help one person. They helped hundreds. And so the ethnics saw this, and they said, wow, something good is happening with this. Can you guys train everybody that comes from the CDM? Every, and, and at this point, it was like thousands of people had fled the cities. And they said, can you guys train all these people? We prayed about it. We're like, all right, we'll do it. And so we began to run these trainings, and we made them a little bit longer. And it consisted of medical repelling and uh, servant leadership because we said if you can learn how to serve and to um, 
serve and in a way of humility your people then they're going to see that and it's going to shift the way that they think about you and the way that you're perceived as the enemy and so we began to you, uh, I'll explain that picture in a second <laughs> um, one of the awesome things about being in a war-torn country is there's no rules a lot of rules I think are for our safety but I don't see anywhere in my Bible where it tells me to be safe okay I see the opposite so Amen. one of the cool things was that's a pig and we had a doctor come out and I did a lot of live tissue labs where we would work medically on pigs because it's the closest thing to a human and you get a lot of really good training and they have pigs everywhere so we're like hey let's do a live tissue lab and teach these students on live tissue what it looks like to do these actual medical skills so they're more confident they're more prepared for when they go into to these war zones and so we anesthetize the pig because many of you who have been around pigs know that you can't just start doing stuff on a pig and it's just gonna lay there so we anesthetized it we had you know it was put under like it's in surgery and we're doing all these medical skills and they're just learning and it was the first time that they were able to do that and then afterwards we ate really really well <laughs> Um, and so we began to just meet kids in the jungle wherever they were hiding and do these trainings and from the very first training to the very last one over 50 percent of the, the the classes were giving their lives to the Lord getting baptized taking Bibles hundred percent of the classes took Bibles even if they didn't give their life to the Lord they wanted a Bible and so we were like man we're on to something here. God's really working in this country. And for 75 years, we've not seen an, a hunger for the Lord like they saw with all of these students. There uh, is a huge shift spiritually happening uh, with all of these students. And so I spent a couple of months developing this program with a couple other guys of all of these trainings. And then eventually the time came where the girls had an opportunity. I wanted to get them in as soon as we could because I didn't want to be a part. And that's ultimately where we said the Lord is calling our family into this. However, in order to get in or do anything inside Burma, you got to walk. And you got to carry all your own stuff. And so it's with backpacks. And I don't know if you've ever tried to backpack with your four-year-old. But my four-year-old is a normal four-year-old. Many of you know that. But there was a grace for her to, to begin to learn how to hike and to walk and carry her weight. And pause it on this picture because I work up to this. While I was in, I saw that the way that you needed to walk and hike, and most of it is at night because the Burma army and the locations of the, the enemy, the actual real physical enemy, is very close, and you go over roads that have landmines on them and all these things, and it's all at night. And I said, Sammy, you gotta start working with the girls and, and hiking with them at night. If you guys wanna come in, that's what has to happen. And so she began to do that. Twice a week, she'd take them out into the jungle, sometimes with headlamps, sometimes without, put backpacks on them and walk for hours. And then when the time came for the family to come in, it was like, no question, they're ready for this, let's go. So we mount up on cars, we get to the edge of the jungle and we're like, all right, let's go. We start walking in and pretty quickly, I just realized I had to just begin to pray because I was starting to feel fear for my kids because it's not a normal hike <laughs> okay this is like real life all of a sudden and all of a sudden what we had been talking about and what we'd been saying was like now right in front of us and we started in the daytime and then 
by the time it was dark, we were really close to the Burma Army. And at that point, we had to walk one foot in front of the next because the trail was so small. And on one side, it's a cliff. And on the other side, it's super thick jungle. And my two old, older girls, Victoria and Olivia, are amazing. They're like mountain goats. They're like pack mules. They can take whatever. And just they're in front of everybody. And they're like, we get there, and they're just like waiting. Hey, where have you guys been? Come on. You know, it's dark. My five-year-old, or she was four at the time, she does what any normal four-year-old would do with a headlamp on her head and goes like this. Well, when you're trying to walk the line like this, you can't be looking left or right. <laughs> and so I took the headlamp off of her head and I said, Jojo, you're going to walk right where my light is. You're going to stay on the path. Don't look left or right. Just walk. And now it's raining. And the rain there makes the mud like ice. And so I'm like, okay, Lord, you brought us here. I'm just, I'm proclaiming what he has said about us and our family. And we began to walk. And as we're walking, I see her foot. As we're getting ready to step down, like a two-foot step of like this rock step, I see her foot go under a root. And she, without any time to do anything, falls down that and hits her head right on a rock. And I knew it was bad because I saw her head bounce off the rock. I didn't know how bad until she turned around with huge eyes like like uh, like a deer in the headlights and her head split open and bleeding down. She just looks at me and gasps and grabs me and goes, Dad, and holds me really, really tight because Burma Army at this point is 400 meters away on the hilltop. And I was so frustrated at that moment because I've started to feel guilt that, oh, no, it's my fault. I look back at my wife. She's right behind me. She's carrying Selah on her back and all of her gear. And she goes, how did that happen? And I was like, I don't know. Let's keep moving. And two minutes later, JoJo's like, Dad, I'm going to walk. I'm like, okay, you sure? You can walk. And as we're walking, I'm like, hey, what's your name? She's like, JoJo. I'm like, how old are you? I'm like, four. Dad, why are you asking these questions? I'm like, well, because, you know, you hit your head. I'm trying to make sure you're okay. How do you feel? She's like, I feel fine. And she's looking at me with this huge goose egg and blood. We'd cleaned it up. But I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to have to stitch this when I get back. And she's like, I'm fine. What's wrong? <laughs> it's like the guy that's, like, looking at you with a knife in his forehead. What? Yeah, what? And you're like, I was like, it hurts me to look at you. So I'm just making sure you're okay. And she finished that walk, and we had to go... We then linked up with motorcycles that carried us another two hours away. And they're not motorcycles, actually. That's the wrong word. They're these little 125cc Honda Clicks. And they drive on these little goat trails. And it's a cliff, again, on one side. And it's just wet. And it's ridiculous. And again, all I could do was pray because I have JoJo in between me and our driver. My two older girls are on their moped with a driver. And Sammy has Sela on their bike with a, with a driver. And I don't know what's worse, watching your wife in front of you, like the bike slip out and she has to jump off with your infant, or knowing that the same thing is going on behind you with your other two daughters. <laughs> I'm like, Lord, you brought us here. Everything's going to be okay. Thank you for your protection. And we get there, and we didn't know who we were training. We just knew there was a group of people that was there that wanted training, and so we were like, we'll go. Sign us up. We'll meet them there. And we get there, and it was 63 students who were Burma police, Burma army, who had turned themselves in the month prior. Every single one of them 
was the enemy before that. And they said, we can't do this to our country anymore. We're done fighting. We're turning ourselves in. They didn't know what would happen. And here's this crazy family there to meet them and to love them. And they were not expecting that at all. And so when we walk out of the jungle with our family, they're like <laughs> kind of confused. And they're just filled with joy. And, and right away, I knew that's why our family was there. They were filled with joy. We see it all over their faces. They want to put makeup on the girls. And Victoria got to teach them how to tie their Swiss seats, their harnesses, and rappel down cliffs and lower them. Uh, she's teaching these, these kids. And you can just see on their faces. And she's 10. And she gets this experience. And midway through the training, I just, uh, we were giving a devotion. And I felt these guys are hungry for the Lord because I was giving a, a devotion on freedom <laughs> of all things and freedom in Christ and what that really looks like. And 63 of them or 62 of them ran to the front when I said, who wants to pray and receive Jesus and make him Lord of your life and not live in fear anymore? And they ran to the front, and I was crying. A whole family is crying. They're crying. And I just had to wrap them up and hug them and, and share the gospel with them and live that out with them. And you can hear, this is pictures of all of that. And you can just, it's undeniable the joy that they have on their faces when uh, and we PT with them, and that's Sammy, and the girls would PT with them, and we just love these guys, and they're super hungry, so we're really blessed that we get to do all that. She does this every Sunday, because she's a little, she's like Mowgli, <laughs> raised by the wolves. Um, <laughs> And she, she came back from the jungle. She goes, Dad, I'm your jungle girl, huh? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, you are. This is an amazing testimony. We show up. We're working at the ethnic uh, military base there inside Burma. And this guy was in prison. And I said, hey, Tori, let's go down and pray for the guys in, in prison or in their jail. And so we go down, and there's two guys in there. This guy had been there for three months. He had another year on his sentence, and he didn't really know why. He couldn't tell, or maybe he did, but he didn't tell us. He told us it was a misunderstanding and that he wanted to be back with his family. And I just said, well, I'm going to pray for you. And up until that point, I had a translator, but my translator didn't translate my prayer. And one of the things that I prayed was that the Lord would show him mercy and that he would know Jesus in that cell. The next day, he runs up to me, and I'm like, aren't you supposed to be in jail? And he's explaining this again through our translator, and he goes, they let me go. They released me. They said it was all a misunderstanding, and I can go back to my family. And I know that it's because you prayed for me. And so then I got to share the gospel with him and tell him, yeah, it is because I prayed for you, and Jesus, he loves you. He wants you to be free. He wants you to be with your family. And my kids, Tori was right there witnessing that whole thing. So then we gave him a Bible and a T-shirt and prayed with him, and he was just so blessed. And, you know, we would have missed that with, with the family if we hadn't said, hey, let's go down and, you know, pray for these guys. So wrapping up that trip, we had to go back out the exact same way. The girls knew the danger this time. It didn't phase, again, the older two. But Jojo, you could tell she was a little bit more reserved. We hike. We get through the hike. We meet the motorcycles. And about 10 seconds after being on the motorcycle, not long at all, 
we almost drive off the cliff and there's like rocks it's like in a movie like you see the rocks like falling down the cliff and you're like kind of envisioning yourself being that next rock and Jojo grabs my arms really tight and she just says the same thing dad and I could tell she was afraid and I was just as afraid to be honest the guy jumps off the bike and he backs it up we get back on the road and a couple minutes later Jojo's like leaning out of the bike and I'm like Jojo bring your body in when you do that the whole bike wants to you know move it's really hard to control the bike I'm trying to explain it to her over this incredibly high rpm'd moped unsuccessfully because two minutes later she's like leaning back out again I'm like Jojo you've got to come in and I look around and she was asleep and that's why she was leaning out and in that moment I just felt the Lord say this is how I slept in the boat because I trusted my father and that whole time I was looking to my kids to teach me lessons and I wanted to learn from them but that moment was so intimate for me because it was like I want to trust my father the way that my kids trust me and one of the things Sammy said when Jojo fell and hit her head a couple days later Sammy said man she was doing everything right and again I thought man that's how I walk with the Lord is we're doing everything right we're doing everything he's asking us to do we still fall we hit our head we get banged up what for not because he doesn't love us not because he's judging us for something but because he wants to show us something on the other side and if Jojo hadn't slipped and fallen and hit her head she wasn't phased by any of it but if that hadn't happened we wouldn't have met all those hungry young teenagers who prior were participating in one of the world's worst genocides of history and given their life to the Lord and I believe that it was the joy that my kids brought with us that they saw the Lord through that and so this is after that motorcycle ride and I got I was able to as we got to where the road got a little bit wider I took a video of Jojo sleeping because it just meant so much to me because she trusted me so much that she was just sleeping there and so can you do you see that video on there Michaela it's uh, it's a really quick video That's Jojo with the pink blanket wrapped around her. So I just say all that to say that I learned so much from my kids in doing this. And actually, one more quick story. I know I've Oh, I still got two more hours. <laughs> um, Sammy and I did a triathlon in Coeur d'Alene to support my mom when we showed up. We did it kind of on a whim. And at the end of the triathlon, they gave everybody medals. And we hadn't really gotten medals for anything before with the kids, but we gave them to the girls as soon as we got back. We said, here, here you go. And they were playing around with them. And Abner was looking at Olivia, and he goes, does your dad always give you 
medals that he wins. And I just heard it. I didn't say anything about it when it happened. But I felt, again, the Lord saying, that's how he does it with us. He's up there winning all of our medals and doing our races and competing for us. And then he gives us the prize and goes, here you go. You get the medal. And so I want to finish with that and just finish with the fact that we have so much to learn from our young generation. I think Jesus was crucified by the older generation. He showed up on the scene. He was different. He was totally against culture. And they killed him because he was this young preacher who they disagreed with. And they said, you've got it wrong, all these things. Because they were so filled with pride that they could be wrong. And as an adult, I don't want to be so filled with pride that I can't learn anything from someone younger than me, someone who's even four or two or one year old. We have so much to learn from our children and to pour into them. And the same thing with our older generation who's gone before us. We don't want to be so filled with pride that they've missed it or that they're towering over us, whatever it is. I just want to be in a place of humility to receive whatever God has to show me through every generation, but specifically through that younger generation. And so thanks for letting me share and talk. And um, thank you guys so much for your support. I know a lot of you guys personally support us and this church supports us financially and you all pray for us. And that means more than anything because we couldn't do anything that we do without prayer because God has to open the door everywhere we go physically and spiritually spiritually it's literally impossible without prayer to go where we go and so through your guys's prayer and support we're able to do what we do and we're so thankful for that as a family i guess they pulled up the website this is our website luke249project.com you can go on there you can sign up for our newsletter or you can donate if you feel led if nothing else you can see our prayer requests on there through our newsletter and updates of how you can specifically pray for us and for our family. And Sammy, again, does an amazing job with the newsletter and does a sister's corner, too. So she has updates specifically about the girls in the newsletter um, and how you can pray for them. So did you have anything you wanted to add? Just really quick, that we've had confusion in the past. So Free Burma Rangers is its own organization. We are volunteers. Luke 249 Project is our nonprofit, and that's how we get to go help them, is we raise our own support completely separate from Free Burma Rangers. So we have prayer cards with our address and our names, so you can be praying and take one of those home. Thanks. Yeah, every, all the volunte- everyone who volunteers with FBR is fully self-supported by churches, family, friends, whoever. So they don't have any paid staff, which is awesome because it means if God's telling you to go, he's going to pay for it. If he's not, then you're going to pay for it. And so um, that's how we live our lives. Thanks for letting us share. And if we'll be hanging out in the back. We love to talk. Obviously, I love to talk. Maybe more than Mark. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, when you, yeah, give him a hand. Give him a hand. You bet. Thank you guys for sharing. It was awesome. Absolutely great. Uh, we're we're going to return to worship. We're going to close with a worship song. And then we're going to come. We want you guys to come up. We want to pray for you. Uh, partially because what's, give us a real quick in a couple sentences. Where are you guys headed and when from here?
So October 20th, we head back to the Middle East and we'll be back in Syria for about a month and a half. And then after that, we head back to Thailand and we'll continue the trainings that we are doing there. So October, October 20th. October 20th. So why don't the worship team, why don't you guys come on up? We'll uh, have our closing worship song. And then as soon as that song's over, we'll uh, ask Blake and Sammy and the girls to come back up. And anybody that'd like to come up and up front and pray for them, lay hands on them and send them out with the Lord's blessing. Uh,